Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Biden's student loan relief landed in front of the Supreme Court. What can we glean from oral arguments? Is the relief program in trouble? We also discussed some GOP on GOP infighting once again, checking in with the ongoing imbroglio between DeSantis and Trump. Finally, the FBI and Department of Energy now believe COVID was the result of a lab leak in China. Republicans are running with this, claiming a liberal media conspiracy and a cover-up. Are they right? We'll talk about what we know, who screwed up, and point out a few inconvenient facts for the GOP. We'll discuss all of that and more. This is Majority 54. All right, Jason. Well, let's talk about student loan relief first. So the Supreme Court, they heard oral arguments in two different cases challenging the Biden student loan relief program. And this it's important to note that this comes a week where they also granted cert in a case challenging the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. So the conservative judiciary, by and large, is trying to undo and stop Biden from doing anything meaningful, it seems. And if you're counting votes here, basically, it seems like every conservative indicated in oral arguments in some way that they're skeptical of Biden's student loan relief program. Kavanaugh was a little bit more wishy-washy, but even he seems like he's likely to support a challenge to this. What? And it's not like the old days where like, you know, if you get one of them, it necessarily matters. Yeah. So yeah, you'd need, you'd need two of them. Right. And so that doesn't look likely right now. The best case scenario here, and we've talked about this, so I'm not going to go through the law because we gave it. We gave an extensive explanation of the law here uh, back when the Supreme Court granted this case. But the there's one hope, which is the standing point, and I'm going to blame your state of Missouri, Jason, because I'm not sure if you're familiar with what's going on here. But there's a uh, there's a quasi state agency that services student loan debt and offers financial Mohila. aid. Yeah, Mohila. So I'm sure you're familiar with no, what's going just, it's, on. Here. It's constantly controversial. And I read an article about it today, but keep going because you're going to do a better job of explaining it. To no, me. yeah, I don't want to get too technical on this because I think I explained this a lot before. And we've also talked about the major questions doctrine, which is another part of this. So we're just training future legal scholars here with Majority 54. But essentially, standing is, is, this legal principle that you can only bring a lawsuit if you're somebody who's been injured in some way by whatever's happening, right? So like Mm -hmm. if I notice a car accident on the street, for example, I can't sue the person who might've been negligent behind the wheel if I just happen to be watching the car accident. I have to be the person who's hit by the car in order to sue. So in this case, the Biden administration is challenging these states that are trying to challenge the student loan relief saying that, hey, uh, these states don't have standing. They're not borrowers. Uh, and even if they were borrowers, 
the borrowers are benefiting from this program. So there's actually nobody being injured and there's a long standing principle that you can't just sue as a taxpayer. That's yeah, the best re- case Because really who would have standing here? It's the federal government. Yeah, there's right. two different cases going on. One is interestingly, like a guy who I used to sit next to at the Department of Justice when we were both interns argued the second case, <laughs> which is somebody who had a private loan who's claiming that because of the way the Biden administration did this, they didn't have their loan forgiveness happen. And so they're suing, claiming they have standing. That seems like a really weird argument. I mean, if, the, if they grant that argument, that opens the floodgates to all sorts of things of people who could, could have be- benefited from a more sweeping program, then mm-hmm. there literally wouldn't be anything called standing. I'll, I'll, I'll sort of halt my legalese to just say that this seems like it's not going to like it seems like this legal challenge is going to succeed based on what these conservative justices are saying and i think then we've both got to talk about the consequences in terms of human terms like people not getting their student loan relief granted but then we need to talk about it from political uh, angles because that's you know you're listening here and you're talking to people at home like your conservative relatives but you're also talking about people who have student loans and those could be the same people right there you could have conservative relatives who have student loans and i think it's really important to talk about who's stopping this which is conservative presidents and senators appoint and then uh, approve these justices who are now blocking any meaningful change including things that can make a real difference in people's lives I also think it's relevant to talk about how out of touch or maybe just, I don't know, how mu- how much the Supreme Court just really doesn't care about what's really happening. Because, And I'm not saying that we need the Supreme Court to take into account things beyond the law in all circumstances, but it just makes me think about how, like when we were in law school, you know, you would you'd read case law, and I know this isn't case law, this is comments from oral argument, but you know, it's probably some of it going to turn into case law and you would read case law. And when you were doing that, you were always reading like historical text, right? It was you were right. reading history. And what I remember about that was, you know, when you would see something like the Supreme Court saying, well, this is really something that Congress would address, not us. I remember, you know, being naive. And just taking that at face value and thinking, oh, well, you know, just purely academic, like, oh, yeah, I guess should Congress approach. And what I now realize watching stuff like this unfold in real life or like in real time is that actually that is politics, too, because that in this case where they're saying, well, this is a major question. I really feel like Congress would need to more explicitly authorize this. That's that's being said by justices who know for a fact that this Congress has no interest in authorizing yeah. something this sweeping. And, and they already and, did. They did it, authorize this right. in the HEROES Act. So this is what the HEROES Act says. This is a 9-11 era provision. It gave the Secretary of Education the authority uh, to, quote, waive or modify any statutory or regulatory provision governing student loan programs. Now, that would seem to apply here, waiving or modifying statutory or regulatory Mm -hmm. provisions. So Congress gave this authority, and now the the Supreme Court is saying, well, they just weren't specific enough. They're just making up rules. Well, what they're trying to say, I think, is that, well, you know, this came after 9-11 because the idea was that it was supposed to be targeted at people who, you know, were in the military or who had served and that kind of thing, I guess. But, you know, a bunch of people who claim to be textualists and, uh, you know, originalists 
That ain't what it says. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, well, I there mean, used to be this doctrine of judicial restraint and conservatives used right. to criticize Democrats for, quote, legislating from the bench. Now, what is this? This is legislating from the bench. They're, they're going to stop this huge program, which, you know, affects so many different people. This would wipe out $400 billion in student debt. They right. want to then get rid of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. So they, they basically want to insert themselves into our politics. That's what they want to do. And then they want to shield themselves from the consequences of it, right? Now, we've talked about this hypocrisy before where they, you know, they, they have, they'll have one decision about if you're an abortion clinic and that you have to allow protesters as close as possible to that abortion clinic. Yet at the same time, they'll erect barricades outside of their own court or they'll They'll participate in these judicial conferences where they opine about the ethics of the lower courts, but they won't police their own ethics, as we know from Ginny Thomas. This is a hypocritical institution that's anti-democratic, and I think we need to start making it a focal point of our elections even more than we have in the past. Well, you know, it always reminds me of that kid who, like when you would play cops and robbers or play war in the backyard or whatever, the kid who like you never wanted to play with because like you got him and he was like, I have a bulletproof vest. And then you're like, right. I shot you in the leg. And he's like, mm, yeah. I can yeah. dodge bullets. And it's right. just like nobody Moving invites target. that kid back. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, and that's that's <laughs> now the Supreme Court. And it's now, frankly, like a whole lot of politics because what we learned during the Trump presidency, sadly, is that it really doesn't matter if they play back the tape is that it, once right. you have your tribe, once you have your people, you know, you could just they want to stay with you. They have confirmation bias. But beyond that, I think what we've learned from watching the Republicans, particularly the way that they've dealt with the Supreme Court, is that even if it does matter, they don't care because what they're interested yeah. in is power. And there is something yeah. to be learned from that, not necessarily mimicked, but learned from. Yeah, I I honestly they're nihilists. That's what yeah. they are. Like on any given day, I you it's almost a waste of time to talk about their inconsistencies at a certain point. I I've noted them, but we're beyond the point in our politics where like the tough Tim Russert question about, "Hey, this is what you said 6 mm -hmm. months ago" is really going to get somebody, you know, in hot water because they just don't have any consistent principles. All right. But let's actually go to some of these conservative takes because they're, the, the conservative media, by and large, is trying to spin a certain tale, both of who the borrowers are and what the politics of this are. In part, they're they're reacting to what is a very inconvenient set of facts politically for them because there are a lot of borrowers who would stand to benefit from this. Let's go to Jesse Waters from Fox News first. You know, who's jacking up energy prices, jacking up food prices. And, and we're supposed to feel sorry for a person that got a graduate degree that is renting a studio apartment in Georgetown and is still single. We're supposed to feel sorry for a depressed single person with a graduate degree who lives in Boston. Why am I feeling sorry for them? Why are they the forgotten they, men and women in this country? You just described the MSNBC viewer. <laughs> Wait, I thought they were in Georgetown and then they're in Boston. Yeah. Did it, you catch that? Yeah. yeah. Also... These people are so insular, man. Like, I mean, yeah. like the fact that that ended with like a rim shot about MSNBC is like, that's how their world is so small. It's like I was talking about last week, man. They're just actors. Like, they're just like, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's well, what that I is. I love that as an unmarried person, uh, to choose my words very carefully, I, uh, <laughs> I, I find it fascinating my brother does this too sometimes where there's just like this 
single person like as if mm-hmm. it's some kind of moral affront like look i i'm not telling you not to be married like like what is this like why is why this is there's this and you know this is a jordan peterson point a ben shapiro point that somehow if you just you make the decision not to be married which by the way we did a long lost debate segment on this earlier in the week which are is a growing trend right younger people are waiting longer to get married sometimes they're not getting married i'm not saying that's the right way to do things but they're basically staking their politics on this 1990s era finger wagging conservative traditional values and it's embedded in that critique there do you know, you know? how many single people i've met who are in a serious not single but unmarried people who are in a serious relationship who when you ask them like when i've asked them like so are you thinking about getting married the answer is always like dependent on their finances like that's why what they're saying is so ridiculous that that they the the josh hollies the ben shapiro's all these uh puritans uh you know and these holier than thou people of the world of which i'm refusing to include jesse waters because i don't know much about that dude yeah but i think he's a dirty dirty cat i'm just telling you and i mean just from (laughs) you know you could just tell uh i mean like that dude's that dude's search history is questionable. And so well, what, there's probably what are, some NDAs like yeah, sitting around. Oh, there are Fox some, News there might be some NDAs at that table. And I don't even remember yeah. who's at that table. I, yeah. you know, my yeah. point is, uh, I don't like that guy. No, my point is that, uh, you know, he's sitting there pretending that there is something uh, less than virtuous about not being married, but he's also like, you know, holding up an economic system that makes it much harder to afford to get married. Like it, right. it's it, it's the reason. It's a big part of the reason people put it off. Okay, so I do have some thoughts on Jesse Waters actually, because sometimes when I look at these people like Fox hosts and that kind of thing, I like to think about who they probably were in high school. And yeah. so when I knew we were going to do this clip, uh, and that guy's always irritated me. I mean, that's like his purpose, I think. Uh, I, you know, he's like a troll, but on TV, like a Twitter troll, but on TV. I, I went ahead and looked up, like, you know, this fella who's complaining about people who seem to be getting a quote unquote handout and who clearly must have grown up as a chimney sweep. I was curious what his <laughs> yeah, what the coal his, mines, right? Yeah, when he's probably coming out of the coal mines of West Virginia, Jason. Right. I, I, no doubt, right? Well, no. Turns out uh, he's from Pennsylvania. I guess not that far away, but you know, his grandfather owned Better Homes and Gardens. Now it says he oh, really? published it. Now published is, I think, just another way of saying owned. Uh, now his great grandfather owned the Saturday Evening Post. Uh, and so look, as well, a shout out by the way to Miranda Lambert. Great song, The House That Built Me, where she shouts out Better Home and Garden Magazine. That's my one <laughs> reference to Better Home and Garden Magazine. Uh, you really know, country song. More than my references, although I know that, you know, it's done pretty well. And so, yeah. you know, as a fellow child of privilege who didn't have to have any any loans for school, who's married to, you know, a, a refugee who did have loans. Like, I can just right. say that, like, I and Jesse Waters have no business sitting back and judging people and saying that, oh, you know, their life isn't difficult or these loans aren't difficult. I mean, it's just complete like, yeah, buddy, I'm sure you scraped real hard to get through college. With your money from Better Homes and Gardens and the Saturday Evening Post. Like, I hope you right. don't get black lung from all that work you had to do to pay off those not loans. So right. so the, I, I figured out who he is in high school, who he was in high school. And I think who he was in high school is I recently rewatched Goonies. And I don't know if you remember uh, the guy who was the son of the guy who was trying to buy, I think it's Astoria, right? And he was the one who um, was at the top of the well and tried to... Uh, you know, like get uh, uh, the gal like um, 
Roland's girlfriend to like send her shirt up or something. I think that's Jesse Waters. I think he was that guy <laughs> in, in high school. I don't think he was a well, goonie. Well, speaking of somebody who definitely uh, was picked on in high school, let's let's talk about GOP candidate and author Vivek Ramaswamy. Let's go to his clip. So look, the legal issues to one side, and I do expect the Supreme Court to rule against the Biden administration here on good grounds because this is an abuse of executive authority. There's a deeper cultural question. This is a case of bribing the voters, raining money from on high like mana from heaven. It's a great way to bribe voters into voting for you. But here's the thing. It is also an arbitrary redistribution of wealth. Okay, someone who's working in East Palestine in a manufacturing plant, East Palestine, Ohio, is effectively subsidizing a gender studies major in California. That's an unintended redistribution. And so what you're seeing here is the oldest trick in the book, bribing people for their votes, but creating an un un unintended redistribution of resources as a consequence. And I also think this is a deeper indictment of even the existence of the U.S. Department of Education itself. I mean, one of the things that I've pledged and I'm going to stand by is that I will shut down the U.S. Department of Education. But this is just another example of if you have thousands of bureaucrats who are given a job who shouldn't even be in that function, they just find things to do. And I think that this is another example of administrative state overreach, abusing a law that was passed in the wake of 9-11 for people to be able to serve in places like Afghanistan to now invoke a national emergency to get people to not be able to pay back money that they actually borrowed. That's a bad sign for our culture. Now, just you may be wondering who the heck is yeah, I was Vivek just going to say, who, who yeah. is this fellow? <laughs> now, I've been following because he wrote a book called Woke Incorporated. So this is a guy who made some money with a pharmaceutical company and I don't know all the ins and outs of it, but there were a lot of allegations that he did some shady stuff with this pharmaceutical company that he bought or did something with. I don't fully remember, but then he wrote a book called Woke Incorporated where he calls out corporations for DEI, like diversity, equity, inclusion, things like that, yada, yada, yada. He made some good points. He made some bad points. I've tried to get him to do an interview, but he doesn't because I ask him real questions and we have friends in common. Uh, he is running apparently for the GOP primary and for president clearly, for pre of the yeah. United States. Yeah, yeah. it appears. It mm. appears now he's got a constituency within the grass tops conservative world. My sense is he's not he running. He seems to like he win. would. He seems like he'd yeah. be a guy that they'd be like, he is very smart and really knows what he's right. talking. You know, like they would like this guy. Yeah, and it actually makes me question how I've spent my past few years that I know who all these people are. But, they, but they, it's like if these assholes were trading cards, you would be. I like know, working I know them the, all. The card I, I've read their the books, show. unfortunately. Now I want to say that he his candidacy doesn't seem viable. He must be trying to run for some other reason, like Andrew Yang, you know, who you know ran and was able to increase his profile or whatever. I'm sure there's some something like that going on here. Maybe he's trying to run for a cabinet position, but. He makes a point that we have to take seriously, which is this the unfairness point. The way he makes it, I don't think is smart, but I think the 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 fundamental question of the fairness of this is something Democrats will have to explain to voters because there are people who just didn't want to go to college or couldn't afford to go to college or didn't have the grades to go to college or who have private loans and all that kind of stuff. I think that is an important critique that Democrats have to take seriously. I agree. And there's two ways that I would approach this argument that he makes. The first is I would just point out the hilarious hypocrisy of a guy who claims to be as conservative as he is uh, economically like having a problem with the way this distribution of wealth is working. Right. And right. and he makes this false equivalency where he says, you know, because they love to name check uh, East Palestine, which is or Palestine or Palestine, whatever they're calling yeah. it. Yeah. Which is 
it's interesting because it is it is very relevant right now. But like, you know, in a year, they'll just be referring to some other working class place, right. you know. But right. so he name checks that and he's saying, well, they shouldn't have to subsidize this. And it's like, OK, the first thing about that is when you're talking about working people in a place like that, you're actually against any sort of distribution of wealth to those people like you're for, you know, supply side economics. You're not interested in anybody who works in the manufacturing world, anybody who's at the working class level. You're not interested in blue collar workers having actual wealth distributed to them. We've talked about this before. You're interested in, you know, trying to gain those voters through cultural arguments uh, and and through, you know, division. Like So that's the first thing is like it's right. completely ridiculous for him to act like, you know, he is in any way cares. The second thing is, and this is what I would say to people who bring this sort of thing up is like, yeah, we're the wealthiest nation in human history. Why do we have to choose? Like that, right. we don't like you, you don't actually have to have the workers of East Palestine or any other working class place in the country subsidize, uh, any of this stuff, very little of anything, to be honest, we just don't actually tax the super wealthy, uh, like probably uh, that guy uh, at, at any sort of, of reasonable rate. So there's nothing to say that you have to choose between the two. Well, yeah, th- it, we weren't planning to talk about East Palestine, but I think it's important to take a step back because this is going to be the Benghazi of this uh, yeah. this presidential cycle. So it's worth taking a step back. We could do a more thorough job on this, but a couple of important things to note about this is the, the train derailment. Number one is that Trump rolled back the regulations that now there's a very nuanced rabbit hole we can go down about whether the regulations that Obama set in place that Trump rolled back would have actually prevented that. But directionally, there's one administration that was trying to regulate these these trains to give them a more powerful braking, more modern brake system. And then there was an administration that rolled that back, right? So when Trump goes down to East Palestine, he should be answering for that, right? The fact that he wanted to deregulate. This industry. Uh, the second point here is that they're talking about, well, why didn't Pete Buttigieg go down there? Why didn't this person go down there? The very same people who are ridiculing Biden for going out to Ukraine now want symbolic trips to East Palestine. Mm-hmm. And I had an argument with a conservative the other day about this where uh, she was saying, hey, like this was really you know careless of Pete Buttigieg, yada, yada, yada. I was like, tell me what he should do. Do you want to put on a hazmat suit and, and clean up? Because that's the only thing they need right now. Like, what is Pete Buttigieg, the Secretary of Transportation, going to do on the ground? Like, and they couldn't answer. They couldn't give me an answer that what what he would do. Yeah, maybe it's better politics to go down there, but what he said, it's actually very in line with the Ben Shapiro critique of uh, of Biden that like somehow Biden was a distraction in Ukraine, which is that uh, Pete was like, I want to go down there when it's helpful, and I don't want to like have security and all this kind of stuff getting in the way of people actually trying to do their jobs. Well, since we are talking about this real disaster, I I think it is important to talk about the fact that it is not just the fact that uh, the conservatives, when they're in office, just like they were for four years, are quite eager to roll back regulations that in this case did contribute uh, to a lot of damage, uh, the rollback of regulations. But it's also all the other ways in which they oppose uh, holding corporations accountable. They love to rail against, no pun intended, uh, against trial lawyers. They love to be against lawsuits against major corporations. I actually, for the you know year or two that I was uh, really practicing trial law pretty heavily, the main sort of work that I was doing was FELA work. It's it's literally just a, a area of law where you sue the railroad for the most part, and and so 
what I learned is that the railroad in this country is one of the most powerful and like an outsized ridiculous level of power of any industry in this country. It's where the term railroaded comes from. And and the railroad does an extraordinary job of keeping laws in place that treat it differently than any other part, uh, any other industry, even any other transportation industry. Like, just as an example, not to get too nerdy on this, but just as an example, when you represent a railroad worker in court and you go in and you you are trying to make the argument that it was the negligence of the railroad that caused them to be injured, you are not allowed to tell the jury. The jury is not allowed to find out that the railroad has set up a set of laws that make it so that workers compensation does not apply to railroad workers which means you have to deal every time you're in court with the fact that the jury assumes that whatever you're asking for for your client is in addition to what they got in workers compensation because they naturally think that anybody who gets hurt on the job is going to get workers compensation but the truth is the railroad has managed to make it so that their workers can't get workers compensation they can only get relief through a case that you bring in court but you're not allowed to tell the jury that that is the very definition of rigged and that's what the regulations about railroads look like all over the place Well, on that depressing note, uh, (laughs) let's take a quick break so we can hear from our sponsors. When we get back, we're going to talk about Josh Hawley, your home state senator, going on Tucker Carlson. I know you've got a lot to say about that clip. We'll also talk about Trump versus DeSantis, Pence versus DeSantis, and then we'll wade into this lab leak theory and the huge debate surrounding that. We'll be right back. So I often get asked, what's my favorite supplement? And this is an easy answer, Athletic Greens. I've been taking this long before they sponsored this podcast, and it's really your one-stop shop. They call themselves Nutritional Insurance, and it's really so much more than that. It's the first thing I do every morning. I've now started taking it instead of drinking coffee first thing in the morning, and I originally gave it a try because I was feeling low in energy, and I wanted to get an extra boost, an extra pep in my step for you know certain things that require the most out of me, things like doing this podcast, you know, doing fitness, playing sports, just being at my best for my team during my day job. And you could take it at any time of the day. I know people who take it you know, in the middle of the day instead of that afternoon coffee. I know people who take it right before they go to sleep. And with one delicious scoop a day, you get 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, and whole food-sourced ingredients. So if you're looking for simpler cost-effective supplement routine. Athletic Greens is going to give you a free year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Go to athleticgreens.com slash majority. That's athleticgreens.com slash majority to check it out. Do you have anxious thoughts? Are you restless at night or do you just not feel like your best self? Making sure we feel our best should be a top priority. And by spending a few minutes with Calm each day, you could be sure you're taking the necessary time to prioritize yourself. Calm helps you stress less, sleep more, and live a happier, healthier life. I use it multiple times a day. I use it in the morning to meditate and at night I use it to help me fall asleep. And their guided meditation, sleep stories, relaxing music tracks, and daily movement sessions are all designed to give you the tools to help you improve the way you feel. Over 100 million people around the world use Calm. And even if you've never meditated before, you'll get the support you need. I actually use it as my training wheels for meditation. And their sleep stories are really cool. They often have like these famous people read you sleep stories and people are really good at stories 
storytelling. So if you go to com.com slash M54, you'll get a special offer of 40% off a Com premium subscription. For listeners to the show, that's their exclusive offer. It's an amazing offer, 40% off. You can go to com.com slash M54. Go to com.com slash M54 for 40% off unlimited access to Com's entire library. Ravi, we should, before we go into this next bit, I feel like what we should do is we should familiarize the new members of the audience with our special relationship with uh, nemesis of the pod, Josh Hawley. Um, yeah. You know, I, I, yeah. for me, it's it's from a distance. Uh, he's just, he is now the senior senator uh, from my state. Um, and I just- A lot of speculation that you'd run against him one day. Yeah, that you beat back. You beat back at every chance. That's right. I get I get asked about it a lot, and uh, and we don't have to get into all that right now. But that's not what's happening. I just, you know, don't vote for him and uh, think he's a, a a weenie. I don't like him. You know, um, right. like I mean, in the sense that he you know runs away from things, uh, <laughs> literally. Uh, but you have a personal history with him that you know not everybody knows. People who haven't listened to this in the past, even people who have, may need a refresher. We, would you get into that real quick? Well, just a personal appeal to the audience. If you think Jason should run against Josh Holly, hit that like button on YouTube. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're okay. sure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah hit if that everybody like hits the like button and subscribes, I'll run. I won't, but you know, let's find out. Right. Uh, <laughs> my relationship is we went to law school together. He was two years ahead of me and he was a bit of a mentor at the time in law school. And if I look back, I could see the creepy tea leaves, but you know, I was, a, I was, I would say I was less discerning as a person. I was just excited to be there. And it's just been really disappointing to see where he's gone from there. He, I would, he's not the only one who's had a, a turn since law school, but I would say his is the most villainous 180 mm-hmm. that I've seen. If I've got this right, 180, yeah, that's the right geometry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, let's, so what did he do on Tucker? I actually got this from you because I think you replied to this on Twitter. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, all right. So, uh, you know, we've been talking a little bit about false choices that people have been uh, teeing up. So let's go ahead and look at this false choice uh, put forward um, by Josh Hawley. Yeah, and I don't think they're unrelated at all, Tucker. I mean, the truth is that Joe Biden and let's face it, congressional Republicans have spent over yeah. $100 billion in counting on the Ukraine war. And meanwhile, the folks in East Palestine have poison in the water, poison in the air. It's clear that our infrastructure in this country is crumbling. And what is this administration doing about it? Frankly, what is Congress doing about it? Not a whole heck of a lot. And I think that that's a stark contrast. And I would just say to Republicans, listen, you can either be the party of Ukraine and the globalists, or you can be the party of East Palestine and the working people of this country. But it's time to say to the Europeans, no more welfare for Europeans. Let the Europeans take the lead on Europe. It is time to put the working people of this country first to make those folks strong again and to make this country strong again. Benghazi, 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 East Palestine. Absolutely. That's That's all I hear. Absolutely. And look, we got a, a little more familiarization on Josh Hawley. This is for those who don't, uh, you know, subscribe to the whole like haven't been watching Josh Hawley since season one, which uh, of Josh Hawley, what you need to know about Josh Hawley is that he is the Trump hotels of, you know, working class champions, which is to say, like, I've never been in a Trump hotel, but. Having watched his presidency, I operate under the assumption that like the the gold faucet, if you like 
took a butter knife to it it would not be gold it would just be like a little gold paint and like i I assume that like the gold doorknob is like constantly falling off like it's it's all a facade and so josh holly is really good at the rhetoric of working people and looking out for working people but josh holly is a dude who has been a vocal champion of right to work of union busting and that's who the dude is like he he's got this lane that he's trying to carve out for himself where he's talking about how we should cap insulin at a certain amount which is a really easy position for him to take when like he's he knows that he's not going to be the deciding vote to make it happen he's the guy who tries to do things like claiming that there should be a raise in the minimum wage but he doesn't actually want to legislate it right so you know he it's a facade he's the trump hotel uh or the trump university or whatever the heck he's the facade of all of these things and in this case it's really hilarious because he's saying a few things here one of the things he's saying is that somehow we have to make a choice again we have to make a choice between you know standing up for democracy against a dictatorship uh, uh across the world or actually looking after people who he's been actively trying to screw over with his policies which is kind of like acting like you can either pay your child support or be an involved father like you know do both (laughs) you know like (laughs) you can do both there's no reason you can't do both and and so it's just complete bull and also I don't know what a globalist is. Um, A Jew, Jason. I'm pretty sure it's a Jew. Like, I'm pretty sure it's a Jew because I I feel like they've made it synonymous with Soros. You're the the least global globalist I know, Jason. (laughs) I I think I I am the globalist. Just as I am Jewish, I'm globalist. Uh, (laughs) But but yeah, man, I mean, like, and and look, I I get it. Like, Holly, you know, maybe he'll probably, you know, take offense to this and he'll he'll want to jump in and and be oh the stuck my. pig and say like candor called me a nazi or i don't know whatever and i'm not i'm not saying that at all i'm just saying that like you know if hitler came back and josh and i lived in the same neighborhood my family would probably not check on his house as a place to hide right. you know so that's that's well, what i'm saying well let me just highlight the, the east palestine point one more time and the, this is something that's dangerous because there's this phenomenon with nonprofits, for example, where if you talk about, you know, one million people we will be saved if we, you know, get, you know, distribute more bed nets in sub-Saharan Africa, for example, that doesn't move people. But if you say, hey, here's this family and they've now lost three people, here's their names, here's pictures of them. Here's a video of the family suffering and crying at the funeral. That moves people, even though that's a few people versus a million people in the story. And what the GOP is doing here with East Palestine is they're giving it a a name, a town, and they're saying these are the forgotten people. They're full of shit, but we need Mm -hmm. to take seriously the power of this kind of rhetoric. Yeah, I I would love to know josh howie's policies on like rail regulations like he's right. actually i don't think he has them right i mean right. so it uh yeah look it's totally ridiculous but i mean that it's it's just such a false equivalency the idea that we can do one or we can do the other. Also, here's the other Josh Holly move to watch for and you could see it in that clip is that he is positioning himself and look we want to be clear with everybody we think Josh Hawley is very smart and we think he's yeah. very dangerous. But we also think he's very devious, right? And so we do pay a lot of attention to Josh Hawley because we believe that Josh Hawley is setting up what could be a very effective framework, uh, you know, for, for, a, a really evil agenda, right? And and so one of the ways he does this is like in that clip when he says, and frankly, Tucker, let's be honest, 
congressional Republicans. That's Josh Hawley's way of positioning himself as a free thinker, right? Mm. He's pretending that by having the position that we shouldn't fund the war in Ukraine, right, that he's somehow breaking with his party. But that's not what's happening. He's he's uh, aligning with the extreme elements of the party that are actually taking over the majority of the party, particularly in Congress. And that's why Biden has to make a big deal about the one year anniversary of Ukraine to try and keep our assistance of Ukraine funded. Uh, And Hawley is trying to position himself as some sort of independent voice in the same way that he's cosplaying somebody who cares about working Americans. He does not. My favorite or my least favorite fact about Josh Hawley that I will never stop mentioning is that it has been widely reported by people who went to school with him uh, that Josh Hawley uh, popped popcorn to watch the invasion of Iraq. He popped popcorn and went down the hall and invited people to watch with him in like the dorm at Oxford or wherever he was that he was living in. And he, he was like, we got to watch this. It's going to be great. And then Josh Hawley, when he ran for the U.S. Senate, claimed that he had always opposed the war in Iraq. Josh Hawley and I are like within 18 months of each other. I'm not saying everybody needed to enlist. I'm just saying that if you were going to pop popcorn instead of saying that the war in Iraq was a bad idea, then I should have seen your ass out there in places like Afghanistan. Yeah, you know what he was doing during the Iraq war? He was... He was with me at Bulldog Burritos in New Haven, Connecticut. <laughs> That's exactly what he was. <laughs> he was not carrying a rifle. Yeah. Uh, and, and and you know what? That's fine. Don't just don't pretend later that you were like against it right. or that you were like, right. out. you know what I mean? It's just what a what a, a walking nothing, man. Let me do a couple quick hits. I was going to spend a little bit more time in these, but I want I want to spend some time on this lab leaks, leak stuff. But just a couple quick hits for, for those following this Republican on Republican imbroglio. Uh, Trump went after DeSantis again on Truth Social, basically using the language of entitlements. So basically saying Mm -hmm. that DeSantis wants to cut Social Security and raise the minimum wage, yada, yada, yada. These are all things that will be helpful to us if DeSantis emerges as the victor there. Uh, Pence also went after DeSantis on Ukraine. Before we we get to what Pence said about Ukraine, let's let's revisit what Trump said for a second, because I think it's important, right? Because people tend to forget the different tax that Trump actually took to win the nomination in 2016, right? It, yes, he was willing to say some of the things that the others were only willing to suggest. That's all true. But the other thing that people forget is that Trump did have a sense for certain things that nobody in either party likes. And he was the guy who was unwilling to say that we should do anything about social, like cut into social security, cut into Medicare. He was the guy who was like, these people will do that. And voters in the Republican primary were like, yeah, I don't want anybody to mess with social security, right? I mean, these were the same people who a few years earlier had signs that says, you know, uh, keep your uh, government hands off my Medicare, right? During the Obamacare <laughs> fight. And Trump had a sense for that. And so th- that that is really relevant that he's on to that again and they're not. Right. Well, <laughs> let's talk about one more here, which is Pence, who apparently is also running or will run, uh, who also took on DeSantis on Ukraine. When asked about DeSantis's flip-flopping on Ukraine, when DeSantis, like back when he was a congressman, was you know voting to send weapons there and hold Russia accountable, calling on Russia to pull out of you you know previously Ukrainian territory, uh, what Pence said was, "quote As a conservative congressman, I oh, know." Hold on, what uh, Pence said was that I would say to anyone that links Vladimir Putin 
that thinks that Vladimir Putin will stop at Ukraine is wrong. And he says, well, some in my party have taken a somewhat different view. There could be no room in the leadership of the Republican Party for apologists for Putin. There can only be room for champions of freedom. And quote, now, this sounds like it's courageous, but he won't even name Pence. Like, so it's like, whoa, okay, slow down, Pence. Mm-hmm. You know, he won't even name DeSantis. I mean, yeah, so, well, look, um, look, the idea of, None of these guys can figure out where they're supposed to be with this electorate, right? Because it's very difficult to tell the difference between the folks at CPAC, right? The folks uh, in, let's just name check it, East Palestine, who might vote Republican in some cases, because they, they don't know. They don't spend time with the second group of people, right? They have like an amalgamated composite character idea in their mind of what that person is. It looks like the Marlboro man or something, but they, but they don't actually communicate with them at all. I mean, Josh Hawley doesn't like put on a tool belt and go, you know, you don't know about that stuff. Neither does Pence. And, and so they can't quite figure out what to criticize each other for. Uh, by the way, if, Pence does run for president. And if Holly, which I think he's going to runs for president, that'll be hilarious because it'll be like a guy who's been exhaustedly doing a Reagan impression for his entire life uh, in Pence running against a guy who, you know, has been devastated ever since uh, Will Hunting asked him if he liked those apples. Like, I mean, it's like (laughs) those two dudes who are both just (laughs) acting as something else. Like they're, they're two facades running against each other. Uh, I mean, it's hilarious. It's like a couple of Halloween costumes in an argument. Well, uh, let's let's do another 180 here. Let's talk about the COVID lab leak theory. The reason why we're talking about this should be obvious, which is wherever this pandemic came from is really important. It's important for us to find out so that we can make sure it never happens again. It's also important just for accountability reasons. And the FBI director said Tuesday that the COVID pandemic was probably the result of a laboratory leak in China. This was the first public confirmation of the Bureau's classified judgment on this. This comes after the Department of Energy had a similar assessment. It's now true that the intelligence community in the U.S. is split. Four other intelligence agencies and the National Intelligence Council still favor the theory that the virus emerged when it leapt from an animal to a human, though with low confidence. I think they're all kind of low confidence. I know the Energy Department was low confidence. I don't know what the FBI is. Um and this to me, Jason, is a mess because certain elements of the media have in fact suppressed the story. Big tech uh, did suppress uh, you know, certain information and we're labeling as misinformation people who are spreading this theory. So this is troubling to me because it's an area where there is some truth here that there was a, a I would say a, like a, a, a critical faction of people in the media and in certain cases in the public health community that were very defensive about this claim for far too long. Yeah. And I, I think I would accept responsibility here because I'm one of the people who, you know, like, I don't think I was a driving influence of it, but when I, you know, saw people like, like, uh, Dr. Fauci sort of, uh, tamping down this, when it was popping up, I was like, well, I guess that's not right. But I, but, I think it also had to do with the fact that Trump intermittently uh, was pushing this. Mostly he was pushing anti-China stuff. But right. but as he was doing it, that that I think caused people like me to somewhat turn off the critical thinking part of my brain and bristle at something that Trump was saying. Right. So like if yeah. Trump was alluding to it or if the right was alluding to it, then 
I didn't I didn't give it the same uh, sort of critical look. And and I think that that is a lesson. Like, look, a lot of what they spew is ridiculous. But sometimes you you do got to like look at it and see if it passes the logic test. You know, John Stewart what like a year, year and a half ago or whatever it was, caught a lot of flack for going on uh, late night and and saying something that I remember at the time really changed my mind. He made a lot of sense. He was just he was saying like, look, it's a novel coronavirus that started in Wuhan and there's a novel coronavirus lab in Wuhan. He's like, Mm -hmm. I just don't think this is that complicated. And the example he used was if there was uh, a giant chocolate uh, spill in Hershey, Pennsylvania, we wouldn't be like, it must've happened at a local market. We'd be like, it probably happened at the chocolate factory. And so, uh, you know, to me, that's the lesson in this. uh, Well, the Trump thing is a bit of, like I think people misunderstand Trump because he was he was definitely going after China at various points, but he was bad on this issue. So mm-hmm. Semaphore uh, had an article out in January of this year that reports that Donald Trump told Pompeo to quote shut the hell up for a while about China at the start of the COVID nineteen outbreak in order to avoid angering the country's leader, according to uh, Pompeo's memoir. Uh, Trump, you can go through a litany of tweets that he sent, uh, you know, February 7th, great discipline is taking place in China, 2-7, I had great conversation with President Xi, it's a tough situation, I think they're doing a very good job. February 10th, I think China is very, you know, professionally run in the sense they have everything under control. The 10th, I spoke with President Xi, they're working very hard, and I think it's all going to work out fine. You can just keep going through here. I I love the idea, by the way, of like, you know, China is very professionally run and they have everything under control, which is like... Yeah, well, they're a dictatorship. I mean, they're, they're like, right. a, 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 <laughs> so, you know, China, also North Korea, you know, which he's probably Biden, said the same thing about. Biden was very bullish on this. He said during the 2020 campaign, what I would do if I were president, I would not be taking China's word for it. I would insist that China allow mm-hmm. our scientists in to make a hard determination of where it started, where it's from, how, how far along it is, because that's not happening now. Uh, and I, he talks I remember about that. China has never provided that kind of access to American science. So, like, you just can keep going down this list. And Biden did that. Now his intelligence agencies are following through and making an assessment. I'm sure this is part of that process. And this is, we're in March 2023. I want to play a clip. This is from the Lost Debate podcast a year ago. And I'll explain why I'm playing this other than to say, hey, I I've, I got there before this intelligence uh, stuff was released, but I'll explain why I think this clip is important beyond me just trying to get a medal for being right a year ago. Uh, let's play this. Please. But I think for me, the big revelation was after looking at a lot of this material and even you know over the course of our conversations offline about this, I was expecting to come in here and be like, no, this is overblown, et cetera. But there's a lot of reporting that has kind of flipped me on this one article in particular with this Catherine Eban in June of 2021 in Vanity Fair. Mm-hmm. And she essentially goes through, and this is a long article, but essentially goes through just piece by piece why this theory is very plausible. And she flipped me from thinking it was possible to thinking it is likely that this came from the Wuhan uh, lab. Uh, and one, one just of many pieces of evidence is that there are three places in the world that do this kind of research, this gain of function research. And one of them is in Wuhan. And and that's not the only coincidence. You got to read the article. To me, there's just so many flashing lights and there's so many implications for the media, for our public health establishment. And 
I've become way more sympathetic of people who've been making larger claims about this. For those watching, that is the third version of Ravi's hair that has appeared in this episode. So I know we, we do like a mashup fine. of the hair uh, yeah. and I'm wearing a billet shirt back then, which shows you that must have been a different time. I, I, I've hidden my <laughs> Bill's gear away. Uh, it depresses me to even see that. But I mention this because we do that podcast, Lost Debate, and I have a conservative counterpart who's not a Republican, but she's more libertarian leaning and through that dialogue, I read things that I wouldn't otherwise read, right? And what frustrates me, and I think a lot of the majority 54 listeners who are often from the middle of the country with conservative family members, is I feel like it's not reciprocated. Now, my co-host reciprocates it, so I, this is not a call out to her. But I, I believe in this dialogue. It's why we do this podcast. Is that The dialogue isn't just one way. It's not like us saying, I'm going to enlighten you about everything. You're going to learn stuff back, I think, I happen to think we're right more than our counterparts are. That's why I'm a Democrat. But I think this is the kind of thing that if I didn't sit down twice a week with somebody who's ideologically different, I would have been wouldn't have been reading that Vanity Fair article, right? I wouldn't have been questioning certain things that Fauci was saying publicly because I have a lot of respect for him. I still do, but I think he's gotten certain elements of this wrong, and I think the the media establishment has gotten certain elements wrong. And Jason, I think like, the question then becomes: well, What do we do with this? Because although we don't know whether, to be clear, I, I believe what I now what I believed then, which is it's more likely that it was lab leak, but it's not certain. The the conservatives, this is like going to be East Palestine like situation, but one where they have probably a slightly better ground to stand on. I wouldn't say they have a white shirt on this for the reasons that we just talked about with Trump, but we're going to be hearing about this. This is going to be another example of the liberal media establishment being biased, and it's going to be something we hear about forever. And what makes me very frustrated about this is there were just some real errors about people that are like on our side. And I'm not exactly sure how to thread that needle. I think I think when stuff like that happens, you disarm people with honesty. You just, you know, like if me, if it comes up with me, I'm going to be like, yeah, I got that one wrong. Right. So what do we do now? Right. I mean, which right. which when you do that, it just takes so much venom out of the claim that you got it wrong. Because when you say, yeah, I got that wrong, it adds more credibility to things you still believe you're right about when you're right. willing to say that you got something wrong. Um, you know, that I don't know whether that's going to get done at the national level, but I think that's what people can do in their day to day conversations. Now, the thing is, is that I don't I don't know to what degree covid politics are going to continue to be a salient way to get people's attention um they certainly motivate the base but i don't think i don't think there's going to be a lot of persuadable voters uh on this though there might be on the issue of china because that's certainly just china generally is something that the the republicans are are doing more than just calling attention to the potential threat of china i feel like in in many cases they're they're politicizing the threat of china in in a frightening way Right. And we've talked about that, which is, you know, mm-hmm. my position, I think it's yours, is that there's no problem criticizing China. It's an authoritarian country that does horrible things. I just want people to be consistent and also criticize Saudi Arabia and criticize Russia, two countries that conservatives seem to have a hard time uh, mentioning when they talk there's about a, authoritarian regimes. There's also a really interesting thing happening in Congress right now where I forget the name of the committee, but, um, you know, there it's a bipartisan committee this, in the sense that it's actually got a bipartisan mission. Um, and you have two members of Congress who have been doing the rounds. I apologize for the names escaping me right now, but they've been doing the rounds this week. And what they've been emphasizing is that this is not going to be a gotcha committee. This is not, this is actually going to be a genuine committee that looks into the relationship with China and what should be done about it. And they've been doing it together, a Democrat and a Republican. And they've been emphasizing that 
they want to see more pressure put on the uh, Chinese Communist Party and less talk of just China generally. Because mm. ultimately, if you look at all of these things, it is it, it, it is tied back to the fact that you have not just one party control, but like three people in control of one of this enormous country. And that that if if we talk more specifically about them in an international context, then you might see it might be more likely that their behavior would be affected. Yeah. And, you know, something you said before has got me thinking, which is you know, people have moved on from COVID politics. I agree with that generally. I do think, though, that this is going to be weaponized not as a COVID story, but a media story. And yes. it's going to be used as an example why you can't trust the media. Like the next time the media exposes some crazy shit that the Republicans do, they're just going to be like, oh, like this is the same media that was trying to tell you that, you know, you couldn't even mention the lab leak without being labeled as misinformation. So that's that's how we're going to hear about this, I think. Yeah, and then eventually Newsmax will be like, you know, Hunter Biden's laptop came out of the Wuhan lab. I mean, that's yeah, just yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. how they do well, it. Well, there's this. You know? Here's this thing that happens, and I'm I'm writing something about this now. They'll throw twenty darts at the dartboard. One will hit the bullseye, and they'll be like, mm -hmm. "See, <laughs> you know, exactly. like that's and what I'm they do." But they don't want darts. They won't talk about any of the darts, like the one that you know hit grandma and in, in the temple. But they, <laughs> but they'll talk about how good they are at darts. So that's that's what happens here. This is a very troubling story. It's a very tr frustrating story, also because China, to me, like Matt Ridley did a really good interview on the Sam Harris podcast uh, earlier this week on this, and he wrote a book with I can't remember her name, but a public health official, basically going through this. And they're basically where I am on this, where they're saying, hey more likely than not lab leak, but they're like, no matter what, China has been stonewalling us on oh, yeah. one of the most important global stories and questions that we've seen in our lifetime. And that is enough to me to tell me this is very alarming stuff. And hopefully this is the beginning of a conversation around China's role in organizations like the WTO and the, and the World Health Organization and all these international bodies. We can't get them off the Security Council. In many ways, we can't get them off of these other bodies, but we should minimize the influence they have here because they are politicizing these international institutions. That is for sure. So with that, Jason, should we, we should do one for us? Yeah, man. Um, you're back in New York. How you doing? Back in New York. Well, every time I'm back in New York, I have like this sugar high. I don't know if I ever told you a story, but when I, you know, I had been away for a few months in the middle of the pandemic, we went down to Nashville to ride out the early days of the pandemic and then came back to New York in, I think, July of 2020. And I was so excited that in my rental car, I crashed the rental car upon that. parking in New York City. I was so excited to be back. So right now I have that energy right now. I'm basically not sleeping and I'm just so excited to be back in the city and I have this cycle of just love. I wouldn't say hate, but just being worn out by New York. And then I come back and I'm like, man, I can't believe I ever considered leaving this place. So I'm definitely in the latter space right now. What wears you out? Is it just not being able to see the sun? Or like, what, you the know, weather, that's like when I'm in New, I like New York too, but like when I'm there, like it's sometimes I'm like, there's so many buildings blocking me and the sun. The weather is it, but also just the sheer amount of people and yeah. all that, which I generally love. But at a certain point, you know, I grew up here, my family's here, my, a lot of my friends are here. Uh, at some point, I'll like, you'll, you come over here to my apartment. I'm like in the busiest area of New York City. So you step outside the door, there are just people everywhere. There are people partying, there's all this, which generally it's like, it could be really awesome. But if you just want a little bit of peace, Mm -hmm. it's hard to find around here and that can get to you especially if you're as busy as we are you know like i i have so much going on right now that it can it can often you know 
it could it could add to your stress just to have that much happening around you. I I remember when uh, I went to visit colleges. <clears throat> this isn't a New York thing, but it's just a, having a lot of people around thing. Um, I uh, didn't I didn't get into Georgetown for undergrad. That's where I wanted to go. I got them back later. Uh, they gave me a law degree, but I I didn't get in there, and so it came down to, uh, for me because I decided I was a nerd. I wanted to go to D.C. for school, so I was I was going to go to either George Washington or American. And I remember thinking George Washington was going to be really cool. I assumed that was going to be my choice, but I'm a Midwestern kid from Kansas yeah. city. Right. So I underestimated the fact that when I, when I went to visit GW and you couldn't like fully distinguish the, the buildings of the school yeah. from, <laughs> from like the very urban, you know, foggy bottom area in which it sits. Yeah. I remember being like, Oh, I, I don't know if I'm not, I didn't say it out loud cause I was trying to be cool. You know, but like I remember thinking, I don't know if I'm ready for this. And then we went over to American university and they had a quad and a lot of green yeah. space. And I was like, I think Beautiful this is campus. probably where I'm going to go. And, and, and so, you know, and my family has very deep roots in New York. My great uncle literally wrote the song "New York, New York." I saw I a picture. Lin Manuel Miranda tweeted a photo of those two. Mm-hmm. I think yeah, this week. We, yeah, yeah. You know, I'll just put in the plug here. Not that they need it, but uh, that show opens what in? I mean, previews start in a few weeks, and then and about what's the show? It's it's New York, New York, the Broadway musical. Oh my god! Uh, written by. My uncle, John Kander, and uh, his late composing partner, Fred Ebb, but also with lyrics and music uh, by Lin-Manuel Miranda, because my uncle has kind of mentored Lin, and they're very close. That's why Lin and I um, jokingly refer to each other as cousins, because it's like we both have the same uncle. And um, anyway... It's, I think, going to be huge. I, I'm going to go see it in May. I can't wait. Um, but so I love New York. Like, I love going to New York. I love spending time in New York. I don't like the Yankees. Don't get me wrong. Like, I'm a, I'm a good person. <laughs> but I, but I, I, I love New York. And, uh, and that said, like, and I've spent a lot of time there, both for family stuff and also, you know, I'm a Democratic, a former Democratic politician, current Democrat, former politician, uh, who, you know, obviously raised a lot of money there. Uh, and I still raise money there for Veterans Community Project. So I enjoy being there. But I also really enjoy coming home, and I, and it would be hard for me to live there for that reason. Now All I'm going to totally yeah. switch gears and tell you something that you'll like, which is that um, Diana has taken up tennis, and so the next time you're here or we're I'm there, exci- I've seen this on Instagram. I'm so excited about yeah. this. Yeah, and uh, I think you know I've not gotten to go with her because uh, somebody's got to watch these kids when she goes to her tennis lessons. But like. You know, I'm not surprised by this, but I guess her like tennis, the the person who gives these group lessons is like, you've played this, you've played. And I don't think they're just buttering her up because, you know, the reason true is so athletic is because like I was somewhat, uh, you know, I'm somewhat naturally athletic. My wife, who was too poor as a refugee child to get to play any organized sports literally at all, uh, is like an incredible athlete. Like she can just pick up any sport and just do it. And it's such well, She's got that Slavic shame. blood too. So she, she's going to be dangerous out there. She's made her, to play tennis. Her so. dad, when he was conscripted into the Red Army, was a, like a champion boxer. I mean, so. It doesn't, doesn't surprise they're, me. Uh, they're, they're, they're an athletic bunch. So anyway. Well, I'm can, excited. Yeah, we'll play. I'm worried about playing any competitive sport against your wife, but I will. <laughs> yeah, will. You've, you've had a lot more time, so you're probably better than her, but she's, you know, she's dying. I wouldn't like, want to beat not her lose. <laughs> or lose to her, Yeah, that's which correct. doesn't leave many options. So, Okay, uh, <laughs> one last quick story. 
<laughs> I've played tennis once ever, and it was when she and I were living in D.C., uh, you know, going to school, and there was a tennis court behind our apartment building. We didn't even know the rules to tennis, but we somehow, you know, found a couple the rules of rackets. Are, are and needlessly we complicated. Yeah, well, so we didn't know. Scoring so we, we played ping pong rules because we didn't know the rules. We didn't make you bounce it on your side, but we scored like it was ping pong, including the idea <laughs> that you had to win by two. Now, <laughs> neither of us could play. This is like 100 years ago, but neither of us could play. Not 100. It's like 12. Um, but so what we ended up doing, well, no, I guess it's more than that. It's like 17. So we, uh, yeah, we got to the point where we were like tied at 21. I think we played to like 50 because neither, we're both the type of people who like, <laughs> I was like, I may lose, but this is not going to end in a tie. Like, that's ridiculous. Yeah. And that's my one tennis story. So, Shout out to Diana. All right. Uh, look, uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. Hopefully, you're enjoying this somewhat new approach that we're taking to the show. Again, feel free to. In fact, I would encourage you to. We would encourage you to leave a, a comment uh, on... Um, on you know apple podcasts wherever you listen let us know what you like what you don't like what you want us to bring back for before what you want us to do away with that we've kept whatever what you know whatever you want to tell us let us know rate the show uh and uh, leave it a five-star review just search majority 54 leave it a five-star review that's how more people are going to find it uh and if you're watching on youtube here make sure to like and subscribe please uh thank you to the midas mighty for watching and remember we all have a platform make sure to use yours today